Hello and welcome to Snap, a podcast of political history and curiosity. I'm Joe Boone, and this episode I thought we would talk about the foreign exchange crisis, which occurred in 1984 uh, due to the snap election and uh, immediately afterwards. Now, we'll just jump straight in. Uh, With the election over, it was time to address that crisis. And what this boiled down to was that the cash reserves of the country had been depleted to the point where New Zealand would default on its loans. This has never happened before in history. New Zealand always pays its debts. Overseas embassies were told to draw as much money as they could on credit because... Uh, the government could not guarantee that uh, it could continue to pay their staff. David Longy was briefed on Monday after the election, and he was advised the government should devalue the currency to stop the run on the dollar. The deputy chairman of the Reserve Bank, Roderick Dean, had ordered that the market not be opened to prevent things from getting worse. David Longy ordered a devaluation of 20%, uh, but Rob Muldoon would not do it. Now, there are runs on the dollar uh, before most New Zealand elections, it's just a thing that happens because of the dynamism of economic policy. Every new government was to put their changes through after the election, and some people will always try and take advantage of those changes. Um, but the run in 1984 kept building and building in scale. Treasury had been recommending a devaluation since the end of 1982, but Muldoon had always refused. His policy since 1979 was to keep the currency pegged and to allow it to crawl down at frequent intervals to avoid big shocks. He refused devaluation again, after calling uh, uh, the election, believing that officials were using the crisis to resubmit their advice. They were taking advantage. The money that was taken out of New Zealand would come back once he won the election, he believed. And it was once it was clear that devaluation wasn't imminent. I will try to explain all this as best I can. There is a finite amount of money in the economy. That money is being converted to other currency at an increasing rate. So instead of a vast Olympic-sized pool of money to dive in, Scrooge McDuck, has the equivalent of a toddler's paddling pool, and it is draining very fast. 
The government had about 1.2 billion in cash reserves, but half of this was in the form of Japanese long-term bonds. It wasn't liquid, so it couldn't be used to replenish the pool. For that, the government would have to borrow, which it did in staggering amounts. So that is in very basic terms what happened. If um, I were versed in economics, I'm sure I could talk about this in more detail, but unfortunately anything remotely mathematical makes me physically sick want to run screaming from whatever room I'm in as if I were simultaneously bitten by red ants and on fire. So if you are also a mathemophobic, uh, my explanation is geared towards you. Otherwise, Barry Gustafsson goes into great detail in his excellent biography of my Muldoon his way. I've used that book as my primary source for this podcast. Westminster Westminster systems of government like New Zealand do not have fully written constitutions. The British Parliament was not designed in the way the United States government was. There is no guiding text. It has been a gradual evolution and accretion over the last 700 years. Sure, there have been revolutions, but that hasn't destroyed the system. They, that has meant changes, and then there have been counter-revolutions. All this happened before New Zealand was colonised, but we inherited that system that was created in Britain. Uh, This all means that the forces governing the operation of Parliament are traditions and customs rather than laws. They are called constitutional conventions, and the one we are concerned with at the moment says that after an election, the outgoing government must act on the advice of the incoming government. Muldoon was refusing, which violated convention and made the foreign exchange crisis a constitutional crisis. It played out in the media. And I should also say that generally after an election in which the government is lost, it doesn't instantly change. It's not like in the UK where the uh, where the election happens and then the next day, uh, the next morning, uh, the outgoing Prime Minister packs up from Downing Street, is clamped out by all his, his or her staff uh, who are all gathered in the foyer of number 10 Downing Street and then is taken to... Buckingham Palace to see the Queen to tender their resignation. Then the new uh, Prime Minister immediately goes to the palace as well, uh, kisses hands, uh, which 
means that he becomes or he or she becomes the new prime minister and then goes to Downing Street and immediately moves in, is clapped in and uh, begins forming their administration. That all happens in a day. But in New Zealand, we have a habit where we wait for the writs of election to be returned. The writs of election uh, are the the orders that um, you know for for the electoral system, uh, which which get sent out um, to begin the election cycle and have to be then returned at the end. We wait for the return of the writs, which, when they're formally returned, that's when the results of the election are formally accepted and uh, a new government is then sworn in. That uh, can take a couple of weeks, three weeks perhaps. Um, It used to take longer than it does now because, of course, a new government uh, is pretty keen to get going, especially if the year is wrapping up and it needs to uh, perform uh, some things fairly rapidly. Also, uh, Parliament do- doesn't sit over Christmas and New Year's. In fact, New Zealand generally grinds to a halt uh, between December and January, and uh, Parliament doesn't go back until March. So, if uh, the election is later in the year, that uh, that can mean that governments are quite keen to have uh, as quick a transition as they can. However, that didn't happen in this case because the election had happened in July, so there was still plenty of time. So we have the new Labour government under David Longy waiting to be sworn in. Uh, He's currently in Auckland. Um, And we have the outgoing government under Muldoon sitting in Wellington. He's, in fact, um, still in his prime ministerial office, um, still working as normal. Uh, yes, anyway, so uh, he was refusing um, to, to implement the instructions of the incoming government. Right, uh, yes, Longy went on the radio and reiterated the new government's position, and Muldoon then went on TV to say that there would be no devaluation while he was Minister of Finance. They also said that he needed to give David Longy a bit of an education in economics. David Longy then went on TV uh, the next day and laid out the situation for New Zealanders. He said, This nation is at risk. That is how basic it is. The Prime Minister, outgoing, beaten, has on the course of one television interview tried to do more damage to the economy than any statement ever made. He has actually alerted the world to a crisis. And like King Canute, 
who stands there and says, everyone is wrong but me. The impasse was broken by Deputy Prime Minister Jim McClay, who talking who who had talked to his colleagues and then went to see Muldoon, who was still working in the PM's office, as I have said, on the ninth floor of the Beehive. That's the building in Wellington, which is so named because it looks like a beehive. Uh, he had gone to Muldoon to tell him that he would have to implement the incoming government's instructions or resign. If he refused, the cabinet would fire him. He relented and did what he was told. In fact, it's it's not actually known if this um, conversation was as uh, clear as that or whether simply the act of Jim McClay going and seeing Muldoon was enough because Muldoon was no dummy. He understood uh, quite well what was happening. So he implemented the instructions of the incoming government and the constitutional crisis was dealt with and so was the foreign exchange crisis because money started coming back in but the taxpayer had had to cover what had been a very expensive boondoggle. But the new government was not quite done with reforming the economy. That, of course, is the subject of the next podcast, uh, not this one. Don't worry, we won't go any further about the economy. But let's take a few moments to consider why Robert Muldoon tried to ignore the results of the election and the new government. But it was unusual. Plenty of people have speculated that it was a classic case of absolute power corrupting absolutely, and Muldoon had absolute power as Prime Minister and Minister of Finance. In fact, that uh, has never happened since, that a Prime Minister has never tried to do both jobs. It it's uh, it would be considered a power grab. Um, but something happened in nineteen seventy five, which to me suggests that this was more more a part of his personality. He campaigned in nineteen seventy five on repealing L- Labour's pension scheme. He won the election quite handily and a few weeks later announced by press release that the scheme was cancelled. This led to a court challenge on the basis that Parliament makes the law and only Parliament can unmake it. Then cited the Statute of Westminster 1275, which is interesting because it's an extremely old piece of law, and in fact is the earliest piece of law by a long way to have ever been cited in New Zealand court. The court ruled against the government 
but the event is a clue that Muldoon viewed the power of the executive as being supreme, which it isn't. Ministers are very powerful, it's quite true, but Parliament is supreme. And while you can't get a court to strike the law down for being unconstitutional, as happens in the US, you can get a court to perform a judicial review of any action by the government or any of its departments. And that is quite a power that the judicial system holds. And it's why it's important that our judiciary is independent in a way that uh, the judiciary in America simply isn't. In effect, of the evolution that created the Westminster system of government is that it is more adaptable. You have an easier time of reforming a system that has fewer rules and entrenched laws to trip you up. There is also no such thing as divided government. The executive and legislative branches are integrated in Parliament. The executive government holds a majority of, uh, of the seats in Parliament, and if it doesn't, it must resign. And a general election is then held. Ministers, including the Prime Minister, are answerable to Parliament. And every day the House sits, uh, it begins with question time, which for an hour... Ministers feel questions from the assembled MPs. The UK Parliament has a similar process called Prime Minister's Questions. Now, can you imagine if Donald Trump or any of his cabinet were actually hauled up in front of Congress every week and had to answer questions? I mean, it would quite simply be... be a crazy event. Uh, But that means that ministers have a check on their authority. They always have to be on their game. And there have been many cases where ministers simply aren't. And they have wobbled and they have uh, been embarrassed. And ultimately their star has fallen. So... We still have a few moments, a few minutes on the clock, so I thought I would give a brief account, as, as I know, of, um, of the fourth Labour government's, uh, fourth Labour government's reforms outside of economics, in particular their reforms which affected Maldi. The, in 1975, the uh, Waitangi Tribunal was set up. That's a semi-judicial body which uh, hears abuses uh, which contradicted the Treaty of Waitangi and uh, then they make recommendations to the government on settlements. The settlements are not actually binding on the government. However, the government tends to follow them um, because it just makes sense. 
Um, now, in 1975, that was set down, but its its effectiveness was only in the time since 1975, which made it rather difficult because by 1975, out racism, outward racism was no longer very fashionable, and people weren't. Um, brazenly stealing Māori land in quite the way that they were after the Treaty of Waitangi was signed. However, when the new Labour government came into power, uh, known as the Fourth Labour Government, um, they extended the jurisdiction of the Waitangi Tribunal all the way back to 1840 when the treaty was first signed. So that means that all the abuses that happened in the 1870s uh, was now could be look, looked into. And so that has, been that, that has been that from then until now and beyond, there have been numerous uh, settlements worth hundreds of millions of dollars to compensate Māori uh, for the abuses uh, which happened. Um, now, that's money doesn't, uh, it doesn't undo the harm that was done, but what it does do is it starts to fix the inequity that happened. Māori have an economic leg up, uh, which, sure, is an advantage, um, but they were disadvantaged for a long time, and uh, and uh, still, you know, that we still have uh, racism that we still have to contend with. So, by uh, the Waitangi Tribunal and uh, the cases that brought forth, we are able gradually to unpack the the knots of inequity that have been formed in the fabric, they're woven into the fabric of our country, which is massive. Um, you can imagine if uh, the United States tried to do something similar with slavery, but they don't. They just uh, said, okay, everyone's free now, we good? And no, no, I'm sorry, we're not good. Um, but in New Zealand, that is uh, that is part of the legacy of the Fourth Labour Government, which is overwhelmingly positive. Um, and uh, quite apart from what it did on the economy. Anyway, that's it uh, for this episode of Snap uh, Podcast. But um, hope I hope you tune in. For the next one, where you will choose a completely different topic to talk about it, because uh, the Ford Labour government, although it's very interesting, uh, can get a bit muddy. So, until then, Kaki.